Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. It looks like your luggage is over 50 pounds. Is there anything you can take out? Oh, yeah. Let me just toss all these $20 bills. Great. Let me grab you a trash can. Stop. Instead of throwing money away, move some clothes into a carry-on. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. I'm Ahmed Zappa. I-, I can't wait to do a show that's only about my favorite bands, which I don't think people talk about enough on Rock and Roll Archaeology. Kick Tracy, Britney Fox, you know, just some of the classics. <laughs> Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome back to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Yeah, we took a, a week off. We launched, uh, released, dropped, or however you want to say it, uh, episode 17, bookends, like we promised. Uh, and hopefully uh, you have gotten a chance to listen to it. I'll get into that in a little bit. Of course, Christian Swain here. I'm the rock and roll archaeologist and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. Okay, all that's done. All right, here's the news. Uh, we are proud of um, this one-of-a-kind approach, uh, an audio magazine, uh, if you will, of high-quality uh, podcast that is Pantheon. And we thank you for your, all your support. We we started this four years ago, well, three and a half years ago with, uh, with the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast and then started adding more podcasts. We have 10 now. We put them all in the same feed. We call it the big pipe. Uh, and <clears throat> I got to say, without all of your support, um, we, you know, we couldn't have uh, gone on and, and done all of this. And uh, we, we really appreciate it. So, what we have done and, and what we're now excited to let you know is every show is now available as part of Pantheon and can be found on their own podcast feeds. Um, so please um, subscribe to them uh, in uh, uh, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Radio.com, Pandora, all, all the places that you find uh, great podcasts. Uh, we are everywhere. 
And uh, if you could, uh, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the shows um, that you've come to love. Uh, and always, uh, you know, send us feedback. Uh, we've been getting a lot of that, and we really appreciate it. We look forward to adding more shows uh, to fill the halls here at our uh, very own Pantheon of Rock and Roll. So find them at PantheonPodcasts.com. All right, episode 17. Hey, it's called Bookends, uh, and it was released last week. And like I said, it was a big one. It's a double episode uh, coming in at almost two hours of rock and roll knowledge. We hope you all got a chance to listen. And if you haven't, please uh, go and get it. So we are very quickly getting to the end of the 1960s in our retelling of the entire history of rock and roll. Yes, the entire history of rock and roll. We will get to it. Uh, just about everything that mattered uh, before we're done here. Uh, or more accurately, um, not rock and roll, but the music of the latter half of the 20th century and the culture that birthed it. Um, this time, we take you mostly to New York in the late 1960s and discuss a couple of uh, polar opposite artists. Simon and Garfunkel and the Velvet Underground. We add a few side trips as uh, we barrel towards the end of the decade, like a shooting <laughs> and the uh, proto-origins of punk from a couple of acts uh, that hail uh, from Detroit, the MC5 and the Stooges. Uh, you know, so from quiet, uh, reflective and cerebral to gut-punching street dirt rock and roll. Bookends. Please let us know what you think. We just have a few more stories to tell. Uh, two, in fact. Uh, we're getting into 1969, and then we're going to close it up. And we're actually going to call this Volume 1 uh, as before we move into the 1970s. Um, so lots more bookends to come. And just so you know, uh, we are already working on Episode 18. Uh, we've already got it mapped out. We're deep into the writing, and... Um, we hopefully, and I know I say this every time, we hopefully will get this out much quicker than we did uh, in episode 17. But again, it is literally a work in progress. This is the first draft that you are actually watching and seeing here be put together uh, and then put out, um, uh, you know, individually. Um, you know, we've already looked at the uh, the 17 episodes and kind of said, wow, I'd like to fix this, like to fix that. And, and in time, we may we may go back and, and do that with the uh, the earlier episodes. So. All right. Uh, a new rock and roll librarian is also out. Uh, Shelley and I dove into the recently departed diva of divas, Aretha Franklin, through Ms. Meredith Oak's book, Aretha, Queen of Soul, A Life of Photographs. Uh, the Reverend Andy King is serving up Hell's Bells, uh, the danger of rock music as the next real rock, which comes out, I believe, later this week and makes mocking fun of the 1989 moral panic piece, uh, while also deciding that maybe uh, faith and you know, modern music can coexist. So keep an eye out for all this great stuff coming from Pantheon Podcasts. And of course, tell a friend. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. So why don't we get to the show and meet our special guest.
All right. As you well know, I have a fondness for L.A. punk. I've said that recently. We've had a couple of neat L.A. punkers uh, on the show lately. Uh, well, I also love uh, highly executed and perfectly performed musicianship. And, um, you know, let's face it. Most of punk is not that. It's more visceral and raw emotion. Uh, I know, I know. I've said it before, walking, talking contradictions. Um, But that's why I think I was chosen to tell the entire story of rock and roll. I love it all. I really do. And let's face it, uh, you know, there is a bit of that punker attitude in the trash metal scene, especially in Megadeth, who did record an excellent version of the Sex Pistols, Anarchy in the U.K., um, I think they also did another uh, song in the in the mid '90s on their uh, cover EP. Um, so today we're going to dig into J. Marshall Craig's latest book, Megalife: The Autobiography of Nick Menza. Yeah, for those of you unaware and asking, how can you have Mr. Craig write an autobiography for somebody else? Well, that's because originally it was supposed to be Nick's own telling with help from Jeff. Unfortunately for all of us, Nick Menza passed away suddenly on May 21st, 2016, on stage at the famous Baked Potato in Studio City, California. Three songs into uh, the set with his band Ohm. So, after a time to mourn his friend, uh, Jeff soldiered on and completed the book with help from Nick's family and friends. Nick Menza, most famously, was a part of the highly regarded classic 90s lineup of Dave Mustaine's Megadeth. During his time in the band, they recorded Rust in Peace, uh, Countdown to Extinction, Euthanasia, and Cryptic Writings. Of course, he toured all over the world. Uh, This is considered peak Megadeth, and I agree. As you'll hear, Nick came to the band with a special set of skills, uh, a background suited to anchor the trash metal monsters of rock and the heart of a lion to help propel them to rock and roll stardom. Jeff captures Nick, humanizes him, and gets you to understand what an amazing drummer he really was. But more importantly, (laughs) what a crazy, insightful, yet playful, uh, caring, and committed musician he was. Uh, the book is not so much rock star excesses uh, as as more ordinary man with extraordinary talent. Sure, there are the highs and lows of working with Mustaine, who can be his own worst enemy and knows it. Uh, remember, this is the guy who got kicked out of Metallica, a band he helped co-found, uh, given only a Greyhound bus ticket from New York to L.A. for being a malicious drunk and a band of drunks. And let me say, I I am a huge fan of Mustaine. So much so that when I first heard P-Cells, I thought Megadeth would be bigger than his old band. Eh, Yeah, I'm better at looking backwards and analyzing instead of forwards and predicting. Okay, all right, let's (laughs) let's get to the head-banging here. Ladies and gentlemen, J. Marshall Craig.
Jeff Marshall Craig, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm well, Christian. How are you doing? Well, I, I'm a little under the weather. Uh, you know, uh, uh, as my diggers know, uh, you know, I've got a, a little bit of a cold and, uh, you know, eh, it's wintertime. It's the uh, close to the end of winter, thank God. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm nothing special. Everybody has to suffer through one of these every once in a while. So, But uh, let's get into it. The, the book right, Megalife, uh, the autobiography of Nick Menza, is not an autobiography. It's been written by you because Nick passed away on May 21st, 2016. And like the book, let's begin at the end. Uh, it seems like All a right. very metal thing to do. Uh, sure. uh, how were you able to finish what had been a, a book project between the two of you? Well, it was it was rough. It took me um, it took me about a year to uh, to make amendments, to rewrite, and uh, and adjust the book. The I'll tell you the the biggest challenge for me was that Nick was a really positive, forward looking guy. It was it was actually a difficult book to write because Nick didn't he didn't like looking back. He honestly had trouble remembering dates and locations and things like that. Everything about him was what he was going to do, looking forward and doing. And everything was in the present or the future tense. And I didn't want to change that in the book. And and in in consultation with his parents, particularly his mother, Rose, um, you know, I proposed this. I said, I'd like to keep the um, the, the, the tense present in the book. I'd like to say Nick does, Nick likes to, Nick's favorite, rather than past tense. You know, Nick used to, Nick, right. what, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And, and <clears throat> that presented a writing challenge for me to keep it that way and have it seem natural, you know, with, you know, just about every reader having it in the front of his or her mind that Nick has has passed away. So that took a long time. And it was also grieving for me because Nick and I were roommates when we started working on the book before I uh, uh, before I moved to uh, Cape Cod. And uh, just, you know, before I left California, we actually roomed together um, to get to know each other well. We hadn't known each other before he brought me in on the project. And uh, we became very close and, and visited uh, me back and forth uh, to L.A. quite regularly. So and it was here's another thing. I think Nick died on the 21st of May 2016. He had a ticket to fly out here to visit me on the Monday morning. So I, I was expecting to go up to Logan in Boston to pick yeah, him up right. on Monday uh-huh. morning. And Sunday, the day before, I get a call that he's he died. Yeah. You know, so it was sheer grief for me too. I didn't I didn't touch the book for months. So so that's where it became a book of and why we left it as autobiography because it's Nick's words, my writing, if you will. That's mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. the way. It, Sort of yeah. the way I, I dealt with with his passing, and and uh, and the book does start with the the event itself uh, to let the reader know that uh, yeah. Nick passed away. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, as we we talked a little bit here uh, in the green room before we began, um, you know, we're both players, and I, I, you know, I, I think all of us agree that you know if you're going to go, the best place to go is right in the middle of a song. Uh, where you're, you know, you're on stage, you're doing everything that you absolutely love, and boom, you know, and and, yep. and yeah, that's it, and that's what happened to him on the at the baked potato, right? Yes, yeah, three songs in, and and Nick said Nick said that on the record, it's in, it is in the book. Nick said, "I'm never going to retire." Um, 
his father is Don Menza, the, the famed um, jazz saxophonist. And Don is over 80. He still plays, goes on little tours. And Nick said, like my dad, I'm never going to retire. I want to die on my drum kit. He's, that, that is in the book. Um, and he, say, he said that on camera. There's a documentary, actually, Christian. I'm, I'm uncertain as to when it's coming out. Could be this coming fall. Um, and it's it's a documentary on the baked potato, and there's a, there's a lot of, of footage of Nick talking, and I, he says that on camera. He said that's how I hope I go, and so, yeah, it's he 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 lived and died the, exactly the way he wanted to. So the book was well within process before his uh, untimely death. So so why Nick Menza? I mean, you, you've written books uh, uh, with Eric Burden uh, and Chuck Lavelle. Why were you writing a book about uh, a drummer, most famously from what's considered a classic lineup of Megadeth uh, in the 1990s? Well, it's, <laughs> the answer, quite simply, is uh, the book I wrote with Eric Burden. Um, the, the mother of Nick's children, uh, Terry, she's a huge Eric Burden fan, and she had read my book. Uh, I didn't know anybody from the Menza camp, although it turns out, you know, once I met Nick, once we started palling around and, uh, and starting to work on the book, we realized we knew all kinds of, we had all kinds of mutual friends, because I've spent so, so many, you know, two decades in the music business living in L.A. myself. Oh. But I did. But I didn't know Terry. Didn't know Nick or Don or Rose. <clears throat> um, but when uh, when Nick was toying with the idea of, of putting his story down, Terry said, "Hire this guy," and he was like, "Who?" And uh, and so you know we 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 bounced back and forth for somewhere between three and six months. And again, it was a mutual friend introduced us via email and telephone, and we went back and forth for a few months, talking about what I how I envisioned a book by and about him, what his intent was, what he wanted to get down on paper and express in the book. And then, then we met and, and clicked. I mean, um, you know, I, I share a very uh, silly and aberrant sense of humor that, that Nick is, has well-deservedly <laughs> widely. through known. in the book, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, we, we became very, very close very quickly. And, uh, and it was good. It was a bit of a crash course for me because um, this, this may be appalling to, to some of your listeners, but I, I was really not that familiar with Megadeth. Of, of course, uh, you know, Rust in Peace, Holy Wars. I, I knew, yeah. I knew the Mark. I knew the marquee things, yeah. but I, you know, I'm I'm more of a, a, a Stones, Zeppelin, you know, Joe Bonamassa, uh, or Rush. Yes, kind of, you know, I I just I'm on the periphery of that the really intense hardcore thrash stuff. It just wasn't, you know, my kind of thing. So I I needed to learn about it, and you know, I got to tell you. I, I can't think of a better way to have learned about it than directly from Nick, actually jamming with Nick, you know, in his studio and having him show me some of the stuff he did sitting on his drum kit playing right in front of me. Uh, that's how that was my introduction to Megadeth and Nick Menza. Well, you know, just so you know, we're we're all about the entire history of rock and roll, uh, and we find it's basically all the music of the latter half of the 20th century we consider right. rock and roll, and our listeners are interested in how it all kind of fits together. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, this, the thrash metal scene, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, in some ways might be an acquired taste, but there is some real quality uh, to it. And, you know, uh, yeah, most people know the story of, uh, you know, certainly Metallica being at the, the, the top 
tier of that uh, that group, uh, just yeah. uh, by by fame, if you if you take that as a as a as a, uh, a judgment, um, uh, and that uh, Dave Mustaine. Uh, you know, was in Metallica, was famously kicked out and yep. started Megadeth. And, you know, so just so everybody knows that 90s lineup was made up of Dave Mustaine, Dave Ellison, Marty Friedman and Nick. Um, so yeah. tell us about Nick growing up in the San Fernando Valley. Well, he was he was enormously popular and he, he started drumming uh, quite young because he he grew up uh, with with Don as uh, <clears throat> as his father. Yes, and, we've established his, his and, dad yeah, was and, a famous Nick, saxophonist, uh, right? And and that that because of that, Nick was blessed with an almost encyclopedic knowledge and love of music of all all kinds of well, aside from country and western. That's just that's just a fact. Not a, not a big country and western fan, but Nick, um, you know, when he was a teenager, he was getting drum lessons from. Uh, from Buddy Rich, right? He, uh, you know, and uh, Louis Belson. Louis uh, Nick, as we know, is famous for the double kick. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he. One day, I think he said he was fourteen. He he went and answered the door. You know, he was a, a skinny San Bernardino Valley kid. You know, just wearing shorts, no shirt and shoes. And the doorbell rings. He goes and answers the door. It's a delivery, and it's a double um, a double bass kit. Louis Belson sent him. That was Nick's first double bass kit, so that's how Nick grew up, and so he was by, by Louis Belson uh, sending you a drum kit. That's yeah. pretty special. Yeah, and he he had that. He had that at the house. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I, so uh, Nick kind of had a leg up on the competition because oh, of yeah. his dad, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And and his dad was um, you know very fierce about um, about rehearsing, about practicing. And, you know, about the, 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 the rudiments of music, um, tried to get Nick to go to Berkeley, and that was not Nick at all. Nick didn't read music, didn't want to learn. He had this, this purest, his purest form was to, to learn it and feel it and, and know the music that way. And, you know, obviously it worked for him. Um, so he started playing drums in bands in high school. And, and you know, also it's, it's L.A., so he's hanging out with... Uh, with John Gumby Green and um, you know some some pretty amazing players um, and actually Gumby was uh, he ended up with the Megadeth crew he was um, he was Mustaine's uh, guitar tech before Nick was the uh, Chuck Buehler's drum tech so you know he he played in high school with guys who went on to work with um, Megadeth before Nick was was even in the band so he he was groomed by birth for this sort of thing really. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, he got such a reputation, I think, in the L.A. scene that um, in your book, you, you, you point out this story, which I, I didn't know and I found really interesting, was because uh, I do remember being in L.A. at this time. And I remember this kind of story floating through. I can't remember if it was like rumor or just, you know, word on the street or if I'd read it in the Music Connection magazine or what have you, but that Slayer was had an open audition for drummers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anybody could come and, you know, try to be Slayer's drummer. And that Nick actually ended up being Slayer's drummer for a few weeks. He yeah, he he got the gig. It was a, it was a, I think he told me he was in the band for about a month. It was about 30 days. 
Yeah, because the uh, the the original drummer, I think he kind of was blanking a little bit of a power play and like quit and uh, and then you know came to realize that somebody of equal quality uh, was about ready to take his throne and he came back and that was the end of Nick Bean and Slayer, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's that is a true story. Uh, okay, so Nick took to drums from a very early age. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, he was a regular kid just growing up in SoCal suburbia, right? Well, he was. And, and, you know, one of those, one of those equalizing things that, that's very likely each of us has gone through. Nick told me that when he decided, um, or when he realized maybe, maybe more prophetically that that is the life he was going to have was I think he was 16 years old, and he came out of a screening of uh, Song Remains the Same. First time he saw Song Remains the Same, he came out of that theater and was like, oh, okay, I'm, I've got it. I'm done. Uh, I don't need school anymore. I'm going to be a rock and roll drummer. Uh-huh. That was it. He, he saw that film for the first time, and he was like, he saw what Bonham was doing up there on the uh, Madison Square Garden stage, and that Nick decided that's what he was going to do, and it's what he did. Wow, that's pretty crazy. But yep. um, and then uh, just uh, the rest uh, was just you know motorcycles and uh, yep. you know, friends and uh, cartoons and you know a normal kind of uh, late seventies, early eighties kid, right? Yeah, spending the summers with his pals on their their bicycles, riding their bikes into the pool, you know that kind of stuff. Just <laughs> you know, just just complete hijinks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, he ends up in the nineteen eighties metal scene. Uh, yep. And wisely steered uh, towards the thrash metal genre, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, largely uh, because of the um, because of the athletics of the drumming, he liked that. Uh, his favorite drummers were, uh, and and the drummers from whom he learned the most, he told me, uh, Neil Peart from Rush and Bonham from Zeppelin. Those were the um, that's what he aspired to. Those were his heroes. Yes. Yes. Right. right. Uh, and then he played in several bands who ended up not getting uh, above a rung or two on the ladder of rock and roll success, right? Well, yeah, yeah. They, uh, you know, he he toured with one band. They they opened for Fog Hat, and and it was pretty hard at that time to to make it in L.A. because, uh, as you may have experienced back in in those days, there was a lot of um, pay to play. Yes, so you, you, and, know it uh, well. Yeah, 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 and uh, pay a thousand dollars, get a hundred tickets, and uh, if you sell them for ten dollars, you can make your money back. Uh, you're supposed to sell them for fifteen, so you can make five hundred yep. bucks. Yep, yep. But he was—I know. Uh, well. <laughs> he was in a band with um, with um, Kel Rhodes, uh, Kelly Rhodes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Randy, Randy Rhodes's brother. Right? Brother, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and they—they they made quite a splash. I think they were the band that opened for Fog Hat on a, on a California tour, and the guy I mentioned before, uh, Gumby, uh, John Green. He was in that band. They were in a, uh, there was Emerald, a uh, band called The Green, which was a um, did a, there was just a, that was a cover band, but they were really hot. They were there with um, um, Darwin Ballard on on bass, and they they were um, you know regulars at the Whiskey. Uh, you know this, it was they they played the scene, and this was at the same time as um, you know coming up. Um, Motley Crue, the Guns and Roses, you know that yeah. that Poison, that that whole Sunset. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I know it well. Uh, and uh, uh, so let's see. I think um, uh, uh, interesting. So so after the Slayer audition, 
and the fact of founding member uh, Dave Lombardo coming back, yeah. uh, Nick um, uh, slowly enters into the Mustaine world, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that Slayer audition had something to do with the Megadeth's interest, or was it just coincidence? No, that was co- coincidental. What um, what what I learned really happened was, you know, Nick had a, a couple of friends who were working with the crew, with the Megadeth crew, and also <clears throat> there's a, a really cool guy. He was, um, um, I think it was his last name was McLaughlin. He was the uh, house sound guy out at the country club out in uh, out in the valley, and he went to run sound for Megadeth. So when it you know looked like they were going to need a, a drum tech slash replacement for Chuck, all that, he dropped Nick's name. Gumby, you know, at, at, by that point was Mustaine's guitar tech. He dropped Nick's name. So you know, Nick had some people on the inside who were uh, knew that he he could he could take the drum throne for Megadeth and recommended him. And he so he went he he met the guys in the band a few times, hung out and smoked a joint here and there in the bathroom with Mustaine, and you know kind of got to got to know them. And then took on the role as the the drum tech. So, you know, Nick Nick was in the organization for I think almost two years before he actually became the drummer. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't get the drumming gig uh, for the band. Although I think he tells his parents that he did. Right? It still belongs to Chuck Beller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty crazy. Uh, but, and but and that, isn't that... isn't there isn't there a story about his dad basically showing up one day? Showing up on on tour in Europe, and there's Nick moving uh, road cases across the stage. Yeah, you say, hey, what are you yeah. doing that for? Uh, yeah. Well, Dad, let me tell you. Uh, but here's the... here's one of the one of my favorite stories that Nick told me. I think they were in. Um, <clears throat> he he was teching for Chuck, and they were in um, Ireland, I believe. And it came up to sound check, and Chuck was a no show. And <clears throat> uh, Nick got up and played the sound check. And uh, Mustaine asked him if he, you know, what songs he knew on the on the, the pretense that if Chuck didn't show for the gig, could Nick play the gig? Asking Nick if he knew the songs. And, and Nick was, yeah, I know them all. And Mustaine was like, well, yeah, you don't know this one, though, do you? And play it. Yeah, yeah, sure. He could play it. And then he pulled out, uh, Mustaine pulled out Holy Wars, which they hadn't even recorded at that point. Nick knew it. Just really? from Just from being the drum tech, being around. Nick had one of those ears. He, he would only have to hear a song once or twice and he had it dialed in yeah so he really put in the time and swabbed the decks of ship megadeth until one day it did happen yeah exactly exactly um he had actually and if this gives you any sense of of the um the the, the timber of nick's uh passion and his ambition he quit as the drum tech because it wasn't happening fast enough flew home. he was done with with the organization flew home had no gigs nothing and a couple months went by and and he got the call from Mustaine uh to take on um the uh, the drum throne and he hung up on him because he thought it was one of his friends just taking the piss and just you know um teasing him he one of those classic stories he Mustaine calls and he hangs up hangs up on him and then he got a call from uh uh, from the manager said, you know, you're only going to get that call once. I think you better ring Mustaine back. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, that yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's how Nick uh, 
got that got the gig finally landed the gig yeah (laughs) well let's see hanging up on my mustaine and then the (laughs) other the other adventures that go on through the book huh that's a that's a ominous sign there so all right let's talk about the presence that uh for good and bad looms over uh the book and that is the one and only dave mustaine famously fired from metallica before they began their rise to uh superstardom now that might kill a lot of other guys, but Mustaine goes on, especially early on, to match them with his own thrash metal band, uh, Megadeth. So what yep. can you tell our diggers about Dave Mustaine um, as a person from Nick's perspective? Um, <clears throat> you know, of course, there was a lot of acrimony uh, with, with Mustaine firing him and then with all of the um, – uh, <clears throat> too close for comfort reunion attempts and and the last one was brutal was yeah we'll get into uh, that yeah, it, yeah we'll, we'll get to that now um <clears throat> all of that said nick um his anger his um heartbreak and and everything else nick maintained always that uh he had an enormous amount an endless amount of gratitude to mustaine he said you know mustaine gave me uh, my dream gig I'm thankful. Mustaine taught me everything I know about recording, about being in a recording studio, taught me everything I know about songwriting, about being a band leader, about, you know, enormously uh, grateful, so willing to express that. And it's, it's, you know, it's all over the book. Uh, you know, Nick says amazing things about Mustaine and he glowed. He said, I, you know, he's a brother. I love the guy and he drives me absolutely crazy. He's his own worst enemy. And you know, in, in in fact, Nick always maintained that anything that ever held Megadeth back uh, was because it was Mustaine's own, you know, pigheadedness or um, or you know, myopic view of the you know, whatever it was. Um, but lovingly, you know, but he he also was very firm about he didn't want to trash Mustaine in the book. He said, you know, no, that's I, I don't think he did uh, at all. I. No. I, 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 he had every opportunity to do so, and yeah. and and let me tell you, uh, you know, as we'll talk about uh, the firing, you know, he had every right to do so. Yeah, yeah, but he said that's that's not my style. And he said that's not how I feel, and he always said uh, that you know if if things were right, he'd love to do a reunion. Um, but he he always maintained that about. <clears throat> Um, about Mustaine, he he kind of took Mustaine with um, you know with with a sort sort of a sly, you know, t- wink and and a nudge, and just simply never took him too seriously. That that's my my inference from from everything Nick told me and what we wrote, and it would seem to to bear out that that's what happened, and and that was one of the sources of the friction between them was he didn't didn't bow to Mustaine, didn't he? Just Mustaine was the the singer and the founder of the band. And that was it. But otherwise, Mustaine was an equal. That's how Nick viewed everybody and thought a band should work. That was yeah, that was, yeah. yes, that's that's the best way a band should work. I mean, you know, you you always need a leader, but you you know, yeah. it, it's best, especially in an artistic uh, environment, that the leader uh, be uh, empathetic to the the other players. Uh, yeah. And and from what I gather, not only from your book, but from other things that I've read, you know, Mustaine is not exactly that kind of leader. That's everything. Uh, it, all the evidence would suggest that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, now, of course, you know, uh, uh, something else that I did get out of the book and you've kind of touched on a little bit is that, you know, his work ethic and uh, and his uh, writing ability were were definitely, you know, uh, 
you know, worthy of, you know, holding on to that mantle of leader, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a lot of personnel changes in the band. Um, But why do you think most fans consider the the classic lineup and peak of Megadeth success as that 1990 to 1999 period? Well, I can't speak for fans, but what I can tell you is in my my own listening research and, and, and what have you, becoming more familiar with, with all of the material myself. But yeah, especially t- coming from it with really fresh perspective. You, you yeah, as yeah. you've said, you, you weren't much of a fan of, of, of Megadeth uh, beforehand. You, you know, you kind of knew about him in the periphery, yeah. but, uh, yeah. you know, you, you hadn't dived into their catalog. Uh, had you seen him live uh, before? No, no. Okay, no, no. So, all right, so not at all. And, all right. No, and, and so what, what I, my takeaway was <clears> – <throat> Once it got into the, um, you know, the, the the latter recordings with Nick and Marty in the band, and then the recordings after, m- to my ears, everything seemed to be either emulating or even in the poorer moments, uh, parroting or trying to cover, like the, trying to cover themselves. Like Dave was trying to, um, not from the songwriting, but the, well, I guess some of the songwriting, but it just all seemed... Reaching for past glory, all the albums since. That's the way I took it as a listener. And that might be entirely unfair, um, but that, that was my interpretation. That's what my ears heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, if you if you think of their arc, uh, you know, with any band, I mean, you know, they've now been around for, uh, geez, uh, 35 years, uh, I would say. Um uh, you know, it's not unusual for a band to spend the first five years, you know, growing into their own, uh, which, you know, which would, you know, give them into that into that peak period and then yeah. having a, a peak period. Uh, yeah. And it, even if all the members stay the same uh, sure. and then sure. and then they begin to 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 wane and, you know, to your point, uh, you know, uh, try to recapture that uh that uh, that magic uh, that once existed. Um, so it, I, I don't think it's that unusual of a of a story. Um, but uh, you know, from from what I've read and uh, and and hear myself, I, I agree with you that that you know those, those albums of that that uh, that 1990 1999 period, yeah. you know, are probably peak uh, uh, Megadeth for a variety of reasons. Uh, and you know, I think um, I think uh, you know some of the people that replaced uh, the guys. Because let's face it, I mean, Megadeth still has you know Dave Mustaine and and Dave Ellison, and yeah. uh, and then they've changed out some of the uh, you know the the rhythm players uh, a couple of times. Um, they never quite captured the same uh, feeling of that. Um, you know that balls to the wall um, 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 uh, 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 kind of sound that, that no, they no, had with the exactly. with that big four. Now I can tell you that uh, Nick really appreciated the Dystopia record. He thought that was a, a really, really strong record, and <clears throat> and perhaps um, <clears throat> even even I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, heartbreakingly. The stuff they were working on when when the reunion fell through, um, because they, it's not widely known. I don't think they. I mean, they, the whole uh, trying to to lure Marty and lure Nick back, and you know, put that back together. If for only one album, if for only one tour, um, you know, they were trading songs back and forth, and Nick shared them all with me. I heard what Nick was doing on the new songs, and. Uh, and 
it was pretty spectacular. And, you know, that became the record after Nick died. And um, <clears throat> a lot of those songs didn't make the record, but there, you know, I, I could hear it. There was magic with those four guys. There really, there really was. And, and whether they were going to be able to capture lightning in a bottle twice, who knows? We'll never know. But it, it sounded to me from those demos that Nick shared with me that it, it was going to be there. And then just, you know, junk and personalities got in the way of the reunion, which, um, which sucked. I would have, I would have liked that. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been, uh, been cool to see them get back together and, uh, and go out on the road with that classic lineup. And I, I think a lot of people tried to make that happen, uh, but just, you know, one reason or another didn't, uh, I want to, I want you to comment on something. Uh, I, I really believe in something Nick says in the book about how strenuous playing metal music can be. I've always felt uh, that the music, the metal music in some ways, is as athletic as his musical ability uh, required to uh, to perform at this, and especially for for drummers. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Nick, <clears throat> Nick's, he, he practiced a lot of the stuff he wrote for Megadeth in the whole time, the, all the years that I knew him. <clears throat> Um, because he, no matter what he was doing, if he was going out with uh, the, his last band, Ohm, with Chris Poland and, and Pag, uh, you know, which was <clears throat> much more progressive, you know, more of a jazzy kind of thing, Nick still practiced well, Holy Wars and stuff like that. That's That was his workout. Because um, he, he told me, he said, I, I can't think of anything better to keep myself in drumming shape than this stuff. Now, <clears throat> he said he, uh, he, he couldn't imagine doing that you know, it past his fifties or into his sixties playing stuff like that every night. He said, you know, maybe a one off, you could, you could do it here and there. But he said, you, he said, it doesn't matter how good you are. He said, I can't do right now <clears throat> what some 20 year old drummers can do. He said, I, I just, I don't have the body for it anymore. The stamina, you know, the, all that. He said, but alternatively, because of my experience and expertise and professionalism, I can still outplay a 20 year old. But I don't I don't ha I don't have the stamina to go up there and play three nights a week for a year all over the world playing this kind of music. So, no, exactly. As you say, he he knew there was, a, um, you know, the, the clock was ticking there. There is an hourglass on that kind of um, drumming. Yeah, it's just uh, especially drumming. But I, I, I think it's uh, it's the whole you know the whole vibe it's uh, uh there's a toll physically that uh is taken uh when you perform that way uh and, yeah. and, and you know it's uh, it's not just metal music uh you know um uh you know uh you know uh, you know i think uh, we 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 both agree that uh you know prince suffered um some of that strenuous stage presence that you know was required of him every night that he put out uh you know to the nth degree uh to the point where you know he had uh, uh hip damage and uh and that's what caused uh his reliance on uh, uh opioids that you know ended up taking his life well indeed christian exactly the same thing with tom petty you found yeah, out that he exactly. um you know, he that hollywood bowl show the last show he played yeah. he, he was um he he had a broken hip yeah same thing with Petty, yeah. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a you know, rock and roll seems all uh, 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 romantic and uh, glorious and uh, you know easy uh, from the 
from the audience's perspective. But uh, but there's there's a lot in it. Uh, the travel alone, uh, if oh, that doesn't yeah. kill you, uh, and the bad <laughs> food, uh, then uh, you know the uh, uh, the constant uh, requirement for touring, especially today when, um, you know, you don't have the record sales, which is used to be where where you made your money. You know, there's a reason there's so many bands out on the road these days is because, you know, that's the only place to actually make money. Well, and why the, and why the tours are so prolonged? I mean, I you know, we recall those Stones tours that went on for eighteen months at a time. It's because they they had to put on a big show, and that show had to you know pay crack. for itself. Yeah, yeah. pay for itself, which took fifteen or twenty you know stadium gigs before you're breaking even. And what one of the funny, <clears throat> very true and apt things I remember Keith Richards saying was an interviewer asked him, well, how do you, how do you stay in shape? And he said, what do you mean? I play guitar in the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <It's> like, <"Hey." laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll do it for you. Just it's like work out. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, and oh, what about recording uh, metal music in the studio? Is it, do, you, do you think it's as strenuous as uh, as being on the road? Well, I, Nick was very, very regimented in how he liked to record, he told me. And indeed, I, I witnessed in his studio, uh, he did not like click tracks. Uh, he was a fan of recording live and <clears throat> or as much as possible. And indeed, that was a criticism he had of the Megadeth recording um, regimen as it as it went on, as the the more albums they did. And the longer he was with the band, you know, <clears throat> uh, I don't think they ever recorded digital. I think they stuck with two inch um, when he was when he was still in the band. But, he, you know, they moved to click tracks. They moved to. Um, you know, songwriting by comp- by um, um, uh, composting by you know layering tracks and that sort of thing it wasn't live anymore. And so, to answer your question, ultimately, Nick liked it as vigorous and loud and as sweaty and so as close to the live experience as close as to the live experience as possible. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. Yeah, because uh, Nick, Nick um, it's in the book there somewhere. I can't tell you right now even what chapter it was, but but Nick said if you're <clears throat> And this was his experience, certainly with Megadeth. He said, when we were at our best, he said, Metallica was a bigger band, had a cooler name. That was Nick's opinion. <laughs> he said, uh, <clears throat> but, but nobody could touch us live. Nobody could touch Megadeth live. He said, when we were at our peak playing live, the, there, there was almost a, a fifth member. The band became its own fifth men- member. Mm-hmm. Something happened that was larger than the sum of the parts. A four-headed hydra. Yeah, yeah. Like a big monster. Yeah, yep. yeah, definitely, definitely. That, that you could only achieve with live. So yeah. You can't, you can't do that sending, uh, sending tracks back and forth, uh, you know, set, like emailing a track to Marty in Japan to have him put the lead on. It just, just doesn't, doesn't cut it in Nick's opinion. Uh, no. And, uh, you know, uh, it's when, when it comes to, you know, rock and roll and, and what rock and roll is supposed to be about, uh, it is, uh, very much a, you know, intercommunication between several individuals, um, that are, you know, uh, listening and listening to each other and playing together. Uh, yes. and you, you cannot achieve that when you are bouncing tracks across the internet. Uh, so it, Hey, it makes things really, uh, uh, far more efficient in some ways, but the trade-off is you lose a, a lot of soul. I think would, exactly. would be a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, so so I, I I'm totally with down with Nick's uh, vision on uh, on that, and uh, and I think I don't know I I have a feeling we're kind of getting back more to that. I think we've gone through a, a period of of music where you know it's like you know oh yeah Pro Tools and you know geez we can do this we can do that and we can layer to you know to to we're we're dead and uh, uh, and it's just um you know at the same time you end up missing that 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 critical ingredient and that is you know communication from one human to another or a group of humans to another well yeah yeah that 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 stuff as nick said that's that's the sketch all yeah. of the pro tool stuff all the all the stuff on the laptop or in the home studio that, that's the sketch yeah that's, and that's where it should be yeah you're yeah. right yeah that's where yeah. it should be right right and then and then now let's all get in the studio and play the sucker and uh you know and make it breathe make it come to life yeah and, and nick was uh you know nick nick shared he he was um <clears throat> uh there was nothing veiled about nick he he gave me full access to his life to his emails, everything, and he he sent me all the emails that were traveling back and forth between the band members at the time of the uh, you know the the last attempt at a reunion, and uh, I mean some of them were were kind of um, it, almost in a way to me, especially after rereading them when I was finishing the book after Nick died, rereading them was kind of heartbreaking for me to see these emails back and forth between him and Mustaine, where he was he was begging Mustaine to get everybody together in the studio in one location. Because Nick was so excited about the tunes, and he he had great ideas for lyrics, and they, you know, Nick was pumped, but he was he was basically begging. So we need to get together. We need to have the four of us in a room. Yeah. Then let's find out what this song is really about. Let's see where this song really goes. And it never happened. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. Well, hey, let's talk about some of the good times in the band. Uh, I'm gonna just throw some quick words out and you give sure. me your thoughts on that. So first Latin America and Japan. Uh, insane fans. Nick, uh, Nick told me that the, the best fans in the world, um, we said, first of all, Megadeth fans were universally incredible. Or as Nick always said, they were so rad, but he said, no, South America, insane, just absolutely untethered, unbelievably crazy fans down there who appreciated the music and the band and, and everything else. Uh, he said uh, he loved the Japan crowds, too. They, they were almost to the very point. Very different, very uh, almost the opposite. Because, almost the opposite. You know, you but, get the but, unbridled passion of the Latin Americans and then you get the staid uh, discipline of the Japanese. But with no less enthusiasm in that they're yeah. listening at every bloody note. They yeah. know every every note. Right. Nick loved Nick loved the cruise in Japan. He, he said uh, he was always amused by this. And oh, that's he, right. I remember that from the book. in the book where he said, you know, they the bands uh, the band's road crew would set up the first show, and the Japanese crews would actually photograph everything that first night, and from then on in on the tour. The uh, the Megadeth crew they got to, to break early and just hang out and, and eat sushi and drink uh, drink sake as Nick nice. said because the the Japanese crews would set up and he said it would be dialed in exactly like the night before they tear down ship to the next gig and he said the same thing the next night he said yeah. it, the precision was absolutely surgical yeah they'd walk on stage including the half smoked cigarette from last night was still there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a cigarette. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> all right, all right. Here's another one. Northern, yeah. Northern Ireland. 
Nick was actually uh, <laughs> Castle Donington. Nick was the uh, was Chuck's um, tech on that uh, that tour, that show, and there was a lot of substance abuse going on in the band at the time. And uh, not telling tales out of school here. Every, every band member who's uh, well, uh, the two Daves and Nick all. In, in memoirs have, have said, yeah, that, that was a bad time for all yeah, of us. Heavy drugs. And we're talking heavy, we're talking heavy drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, and Mustaine went out and, and made a comment about, uh, uh, about the, the troubles, which of course is such, such a flashpoint and about making, uh, Ireland for the Irish again, which caused a riot between the Catholics and the Protestants in the crowd. And they had to, they were the security hustled them onto a bus, got them out of there. The bus was pelted with bottles and rocks and the whole deal. And Nick's, Nick said, well, at least Dave got the song Holy Wars out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, part, part of the, the calamity of that period in the band's life. All right, all right. How about uh, uh, Monsters of Rock tours? <sighs> kind of the same thing. And, and uh, well, the early ones was... Uh, uh, was drug abuse was uh, I believe it was the first one is where uh, Ellison um, packed it in where he he just his uh, his heroin addiction was so bad he he was not functioning anymore and they had to cancel that and I actually had dinner with uh, with Ellison a couple months ago um, here in Cape Cod and we were talking about that and how he uh, you know the the blessings of cleaning up which Nick did too in later life Nick Nick cleaned up um, but that um, you know that that just was so compromising to the music, not not to mention health and and personal spirituality and everything else. But it was on the last tour, um, I, th I think it was the last one where they were um, supporting Ozzy, and that's where Nick had the uh, benign tumor and had the surgery, and then you know two days later got got fired off the tour and and out of the band and everything else. So um, they're they're <clears throat> Rock and Rio, I think, had a better track record with uh, with with Megadeth. Uh, the Rock and Rio uh, shows, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right, uh, Milton Keynes and playing with Metallica. Wasn't that the first time that uh, yeah. the Mustaine uh, got back uh, on the same bill with uh, his ex bandmates? I believe so, and and uh, my recollection there of what Nick talked about it was uh, never comfortable, wasn't fun. It was it was just the whole thing was was tense, and uh, it was it, none of it was about the music. Really? Yeah, that's uh, that was the impression I got from Nick. Was it? Wow. It, it wasn't. It wasn't fun. It was you know great for the fans, and and of course that's a reason in itself to do it naturally, you know not to dismiss it, but you know as as somebody in the wings, it, it was actually the first show he ever played with, uh, I believe the first show he ever played with uh, Megadeth. Um, some of the guys, uh, I think Lars and. Um, I forget, I'm not sure who, who else it was, but I think a couple of the guys from Metallica were there. They they showed up to see what Mustaine was up to, with with Nick and um, and they Mustaine bailed. Uh, he he took the guys and you know Marty and took the four of them and bailed. Didn't go backstage after. Um, so it was it was tense, not just in behind the. It was te as tense behind the scenes as it was in the public, you know. So. Just, just not. Uh, it's not a good atmosphere. It's not a good vibe. Uh, holding uh, old uh, wounds uh, open, yeah. I guess. So. Yeah. All right. Well, then, geez, I, that was supposed to be the good times. Because um, <laughs> uh, now I got to bring up Portland. 
<clears throat> oh, yeah, that was um, uh, Nick. Nick himself was very heartbroken about that. Um, there's a uh, uh, the platform fence kind of thing at the, the front of the stage collapsed and kids rushing forward. It turned into a riot. And it was through no fault of the, the band, you know, whosoever fault it was, promoter, who, you know, it, I guess it doesn't really matter. Thankfully, nobody was injured. That was the most important thing. However, on the bus leaving, the rushing from the venue, I guess Mustaine was so upset. And and I qualify this by, you know, you, this is in Mustaine's book as well as, as other sources. He he dropped a bottle of, uh, he took a bottle of Valium. And he... Um, he overdosed before they even made it to the hotel, so the, they detoured, went to the and Mustaine was dead. He was clinically dead in the ER and, uh, you know, ended up in a coma for days or a couple of weeks and, you know, off to rehab after that. And that aborted the tour, um, which was at the time their most promising, their biggest tour. They had Stone Temple Pilots opening for them, not the other way around, and and they were – that was going to be the first show at the Bodokan in um, Tokyo which of course Marty, that was, you know, a lifelong dream of Marty's. And that really, that really uh, knocked the wheels off, um, off, off the band for a long time. Nick even suggested that they never really recovered from that, that, that it was uh, from there on, they were always make, uh, trying to catch up to where they were at the start of that, that year would have been year long tour with Stone Temple Pilots that they, right. they never, never got it back after that. Uh, I, I'm not sure if Stone Temple Pilots would have ended up as a, a supporting act for a year. They were just coming up and about ready to explode. But I see your point. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they, they definitely that, – that, that's a great double bill uh, oh, yeah, yeah. of, of some and he, good hard rock. Listen, let, me, let me throw one in there. I don't know, even know if this one's in the book, this little aside. Uh, I guess <clears throat> Scott didn't, uh, didn't like doing uh, sound checks for – whatever reason or whatever Scott Weiland from yeah yeah or whatever whatever distractions may or may not have been going on so it's actually Nick would go out with them and he would he would do the uh, the sound check Nick was a great vocalist oh he would take he would do uh Weiland's parts huh oh, okay. uh no no he'd do Nick's parts they'd go out and uh, and cover Zeppelin they go out and do oh. Zeppelin cover. Oh, for uh, for a sound check. Oh, okay. Just for Big the sound parts. check. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How funny is that? Oh, yeah. that is very cool. Very <clears throat> cool. All right. So for ten years, Mustaine could keep a solid lineup, and and Megadeth was a huge touring band. I mean, Rust in yeah. Peace, Countdown to Extinction, Euthanasia are considered all time metal classics. Uh, the Hidden Treasures EP, uh, and uh, with the soundtrack. Um, but I have to ask about cryptic writings because it seems this is where the real cracks begin to form for 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 Nick. There, what what happened? Yeah. He well, he didn't like the recording process. Again, there were it was click tracks. It was uh, <clears throat> not yeah. live. Recording. Yeah, they brought in Bud Prager. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, he wasn't uh, <clears throat> not not happy about that process. And Nick was also burning out. Um, on all the touring, he wasn't happy about the dynamics in the band, and of course, there, there was a lot of internal friction. There was a lot of, um, um, you know, trouble with the record companies, and uh, and you know, intermittent alcohol and drug abuse by the uh, by some by some of the band members, and uh, and then, uh, of course, Mustaine. I believe he was clean at that time, but he insisted on uh, drug testing for all the band, all the all the. So crew. everybody else had to be clean. Right? And, yeah, yeah, and Nick refused. Um, yeah. You know, Nick wasn't. He'd like to join and he'd like to have a beer after the show. You know, Nick wasn't abusing hard drugs at that time. 
But he, you know, that was Nick's personality too, and where he really clashed with Mustaine. And Mustaine says the same thing in his own um, memoirs. He, he he said that Nick was the holdout and all this stuff. Um, you know, Nick <clears throat> Nick was his own man, and uh, you know didn't didn't bow to Mustaine at all. Perhaps not even those times when you know maybe he should have, as as you pointed out, Mustaine being the the team leader, the band leader, <clears throat> but. But there was a lot of friction, and he is Nick, a captain, Captain Ply, perhaps, but yeah, he's still a captain. Yeah. yeah, and Nick didn't like the direction of the music. He he thought it was um, getting too poppy, too um, you know. It, it was it was it was. No, less. Prager was uh, Foreigner's old uh, producer, right? Yeah, yeah, and and that was Nick's thing. He said, "You bring in Foreigner's producer. That's what you're going to get." Um, you know, mega foreigner. The, soft, the, yeah. soft, the softer <laughs> side of Megadeth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I can see where, let's see. So this was after Portland. So, and as you said, Portland was where Nick, I think, first started to see the cracks in, uh, yes. in that. And then so Mustaine gets, uh, gets clean, you know, realizes that, uh, you know, he had a near-death experience. And um, he, um, uh, you know, uh, comes back and uh, decides he, he wants to make a pop album and it is kind of a it's a weirdly sort of you know popish version of of, of megadeth and I, i'm sure you know he's looking at his ex-bandmates and seeing all the giant success that they're having uh uh you know huge record sales um yeah you know, grammys and all that uh and so they go down this road and it just doesn't work out too well huh exactly yeah now now nick was um <clears throat> favorable about the this is the thing is Nick would always see the good in something well almost always um, and that record he you know he, he said that one he saw a lot of Marty's influence in that because that's Marty's thing is uh, you know and that's what Marty's done ever since he Marty left Friedman, uh, yeah. Marty Friedman is uh, you know the a more pop sensibility mm. and um, <clears throat> you know certainly uh, definitively less thrashy um, you know so Nick Nick thought it was a, a well-crafted record just not a mega it just wasn't a megadeth record you know that, that's the way nick viewed it yeah all right so now the hardest moment in nick's life and 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 that begins with a knee problem while out on tour yeah uh can we also talk about how grueling a mid-90s megadeth tour schedule was <clears throat> well i you know it's funny i he showed me the um the the tour books you know the book that every 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 band member every crew member would have you know all all bands do this it's just yeah. so you know, when you're out on the road <clears throat> for 10 months or 20 months, you know what hotel you're supposed to be at on what day and the name of the, you know, name and cell phone number, the road man, you know, all the info you yeah, need. the basics in, uh, in that one, you can survive uh, and one, not yeah. get lost, right. Exactly, exactly. Because it all, you know, Nick, as Nick said, after you've done three or four world tours, it really blurs together. Oh, you know, every you city looks the same and yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but he said... Mustaine, um, and this was complimentary with with an aside. Nick Nick said, Mustaine has such a work ethic that there were no days off on a Megadeth tour. There were non-performance days, but those were not days off. And he showed me the tour book, and it said that it it would say that non-performance day wasn't day off. Um, <clears throat> So it was. It was. It so was. What, what did that mean? I mean, did they did they go to the arena and 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 play, or did they go to the studio and try to record, or 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 or, or you know, did Dave just demand that they all show up and count heads? It, no, no, not necessarily. But it was it was you know, be on standby. 
Uh-huh. So, you know, we're, we're out here, you know, for a reason. This is not a pleasure cruise. We're not out here vacationing. We're not here to see Paris. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, wait a minute. I thought that's the point of joining the circus is to go out and uh, have some fun, you know. So, oh, a little bit more like a military venture. Well, yeah, he, he's, yeah, that's how, that's how Mustaine ran the, ran the show then. <clears throat> All right, so the knee problem, that uh, that begins to, to become a, a, an issue. And I think this had, had been affecting him for a while, right? It had, yeah, for several months. It was, it was a soreness, he told me, in the knee, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, which was exacerbated with, you know, two-hour punishing shows, uh, you know, playing that kind of music, playing the way Nick did, you know, standing up because of the, the – the 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 rack system he had on the drum kit he'd stand up to hit the crash cymbals and you know he it was talk about the punishment due that's what he was doing to himself every night and and it became painful he went and had it looked at and there was a tumor on the knee and a growth so they they went in and uh, and took it out and you know thankfully it was benign um <clears throat> And, uh, you know, it looked like he'd be off. He was hoping for maybe a week, maybe up 10 days, two weeks, he'd be off the tour. Uh, and yeah. Mustaine told him, hey, go and get this done, man. Right? Yeah. 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 Don't don't push this. You know, that, that's nuts. Have yourself looked after. It was two days after the surgery. Mustaine called him at, in, at the hospital and said, you know, uh, your your services are no longer required. And Nick thought he was joking. He said, you know, don't don't screw around. Uh, this is not, not the time to be fucking around with me. And Mustaine, no, no, I don't think you're hearing me. Um, we're we're letting you go. And yeah, uh, just on the phone, and 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 Nick's still in the hospital, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is two days. He's in recovery. He's in the, um, <clears throat> yeah, in in the hospital now. Um, Nick almost <clears throat> not defended Mustaine, but he he even tries to in the book tries to explain. Mustaine's behavior. He said, well, you know, we had been fighting a lot, the two of us. Um, he said, you know, I wasn't backing down with him. I was, um, <clears throat> you know, I was being a bit of a jerk and, you know, trying trying to piss Mustaine off here and there. It was like brothers, like sibling rivalry. He was trying to, you know, get Mustaine's goat and they were not getting along. Uh, Nick wanted more influence in the band, wanted more involvement in the songwriting, uh, more involvement in the direction of the band, particularly the recording process. As we've said, he, you know, he wanted to work live analog without a click track. He wanted the band, band to write music, not just Mustaine come to the band with songs and, you know, that, that sort of thing. He wanted it to be more participatory and, um, and, you know, he was getting a lot of static and a lot of resistance from Mustaine. And I think it's been expressed in the in in the way that Nick talked about it with me, that Marty was beginning to lose interest, you know, in being a super active member of the band. Not that he was slacking off, don't mistake me. Yeah. But it was just, you know, he, he was starting to tire of the way things were going and the music. I mean, um, Friedman is a, you know, a virtuoso, guitar virtuoso. And... <clears throat> You know, it's it's it would appear that he was becoming a little, a little um, frustrated with the the music and you know not being able to to stretch further, uh, at least in the songwriting he wanted to do. And so Nick saw this as you know this was Mustaine's chance to to get rid of Nick to you know to get rid of this this huge irritant in his side, this guy who wouldn't comply, who wanted to do things differently, wanted more involvement in. You know the decision-making process, the management, and and wouldn't you know do a piss test you know for drugs, 
So he was a thorn in Mustaine's side, and Nick admitted that. He said, you know, so that was his chance, and, and he took it. Yeah, but to do it on the phone two days after surgery, when the guy's still in the hospital, that's a little unforgivable. Well. I mean, uh, something tells me he probably would have texted him today. Well, a text or email. When, you know, I got, I got a, well, I have never ended a phone conversation with Mustaine where he didn't hang up on me. <laughs> um, and the uh, the the when the the reunion tour was coming together, the the one that never happened, when it looked like it was going to come together, and there are all these emails flying back and forth with the songs, um, with uh, discussions of how they were going to break, they were going to break the news at Nam, and you know how, <clears throat> how they were going to gear up the social media, and and Dave Mustaine was very careful about telling all the guys. Don't do anything on your Facebook or Twitter. We got to be quiet about this. There's already rumblings in the community that the the, the you know the, the classic lineup is going to get back together, and we got to be very careful. They were planning on how to announce it and everything else. And then that when there were problems uh, with it, it just came down to money. You know, Nick's management um, handling negotiations and Mustaine handling, and it got really terse. And uh, and the I've got the emails. Uh, it was actually the publisher of the book who decided let's not put them in. It just makes Mustaine look so bad. It look, it's nasty. It's a nasty trick. Nick wanted them in the book. The publisher decided against it, probably for legal reasons too. Um, I, I think if it comes down to it, the author of an email has the copyright to that, so we couldn't publish Mustaine's emails. But they were they were nasty. You know, they're really really nasty to Nick and. Um, just like a a kid throwing because a temper. They, they, I, I think if I remember right, they, they, they basically wanted him to do it for nothing, right? In the end, well, it was kind of pushed into the, uh, you know, you're just a hired hand and, you know, here's yes. scale. Uh, uh, well, not, e not even that for the rehearsals and the album. They weren't going to pay him anything. Yeah, that's, that's uh, come on. Uh, you know, the yeah. whole point was to get this classic lineup together, uh, you know, and there's no reason... To, to, there's no way this is not going to get there uh, well, exactly. if, if Mustaine does not know that that is the classic lineup of, of Megadeth. You know, it just it's just never going to happen if he does not have that already in his head. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, I can understand why, you know, you know, the you know, the, the, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder is saying, yeah, but remember, all those problems come back with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and the, the thing was, uh, had it just been about the money, I think it could have been resolved a little more easily. But, um, <clears throat> you know, Nick, Nick wasn't destitute. What Nick needed was the respect. And and when it became, you know, we're yes, we're going to pay you, you know, 10 scale plus 10 or, you know, whatever it was, um, you know, I, I did see the numbers. I saw, you know, Nick, and he, he included me on everything. I, I, I saw all the information. But the big thing was not paying him for the rehearsals or the writing and recording of the album. And that wasn't about money. Nick took that as um, Respect, yeah. as, yeah. as an insult. And yeah. almost, you know, Nick, Nick said. I, he did, he just doesn't want to admit that he was wrong to fire me. He, that he doesn't want to admit that breaking up that lineup of Megadeth, um, you know, was a bad idea. He doesn't want to admit that, and that's what it came down to. And and Nick always described him, and this I can say not unfairly from my personal experience with Mustaine. He threw a temper tantrum, and that's that's what it was. 
And so the whole thing went south and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tragic. Well, like I said, there, there's no way it would have got this close without him, without Mustaine knowing that this was the classic lineup of Megadeth. It's just, it just is. So there, uh, you well, know, he would have, he would have fluffed it off uh, at the first suggestion. Like, why? That's not that important. Uh, but well, if it was really, if it really was, then it would, it got, it got really close, and it did several times. Oh, oh, it, it got very close this this last time. Like I say, they were writing songs. Yeah. Mustaine sending him songs. Uh, demos to play on to, to contribute lyrics and everything and and they were tr and Mustaine was trying to be very careful about um, about the public finding out that this was going on he was holding the cards very close to his vest at the same time in there they're talking about how big this you know would be and that this this would put Megadeth back in in you know headlining stadiums all yeah. over the world yeah and there was there was an acknowledgement of that and so that that's why you know Nick found it doubly or trebly insulting that uh you know that they were they weren't weren't coming coming up with with money yeah. and uh you know even for the as i say for the rehearsals and for the recording of the album he just found that insulting so after uh the firing uh i i, I know uh you know nick took a turn for the worst uh it, it must have been absolutely devastating and it took him several years to kind of you know, get back uh, into uh, the swing of things. But he did. He, he, he put a band together called Ohm uh, with Chris Poland on guitar and uh, Pag Pagliari on, on bass. Uh, you well, know, sort, just, of a, sort of a jazz metal band, right? Well, yeah, he, he, it was not his band. It was he, he joined after uh, David Eagle uh, passed away. Um, ironically, of uh, heart heart uh, trouble oh. um, a, a year before. It was um, yeah, it was, really? it was yeah. It's, it's Chris and Pag's band, and they they brought Nick in. Uh, first of all, actually, was to play a benefit for David. He'd suffered a heart attack, and <clears throat> on stage at the Baked Potato. No uh, way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he you know, he was in hospital, I believe ICU. I could be wrong there, but he was he was in hospital. Oh, but he survived. He survived. Oh, and okay. uh, and I so was they say this is starting to sound like a Spinal Tap. Uh, well, no, it's bit it's, here. It, it's going to. Uh, this was a uh, they organized a benefit for David and his family, uh, which Nick played. That was the first time he played with Ohm, and uh, so that's when he uh, Nick worked with uh, David over the phone. And uh, and David giving him the <clears throat> the thumbs up. Uh, I think Nick Nick said, you know, this is really difficult stuff the way you play. And David said, well, don't don't play the way I play. Play the way Nick Menza plays. And uh, so <clears throat> they had this great relationship in these days or weeks of organizing the the benefit concert. And then while in hospital, David did pass away, oh. um, tra tragically. And so after that, <clears throat> uh, they invited Nick to join the band. And and it was a workout. He was um, Nick. Nick said that that was um, pretty much his his favorite favorite band. Looking back, was playing with them. That that was the most challenging. Um, and I I know I, he loved it. I was um, you know I I was there. I saw rehearsals, um, <clears throat> and I was at the I was at the baked potato on occasion. Not not the night he passed away, but. Uh, but yeah, he, you know, he he went through a lot of depression, um, and he was pretty secretive about drug abuse and stuff until we started working on the book. And he said, you know what, uh, it's out there. There's there are interviews with me on on YouTube, and I, I look like a corpse. You know, I'm 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 I've destroyed myself on you know smoking meth. And he said, hey, why don't I? No shame. Why don't I talk about this? Why don't I talk about why I cleaned up? Why I got better? 
Um, and if that's, you know, has some effect and has one kid put down the, um, the meth pipe or not pick the meth pipe up, it's all been worth it. And that was Nick's attitude, which is why there's an entire chapter in the book on, on drinking and, and, and drugs yeah. and addiction. Yeah. 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 He, he decided to not just come, come clean, pardon the pun, but, you know, be an advocate for, for health basically. I want to ask you something else about uh, an interesting uh, a piece that you put in the book, and and those are the, the 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 pieces from Nick's family, friends, and professionals that make comments throughout it. Uh, was that done after Nick's passing? Yeah, it was. It was the only way I, I figured I could include um, contemporary comment and uh, and reflections on Nick, and and quite frankly, uh, I encountered this first in the second chapter where Nick's mom was talking about. Um, in Germany, because Nick was born in Munich, he was actually born in in Germany. Yeah, while, while Dad was on tour playing in uh, playing in Europe. Yeah, that's right. And Nick's mom, uh, when she'd be doing the laundry or housework or what have you, to <clears throat> occupy Nick, she the, the infant Nick, she'd put him on the kitchen floor with pots and pans and wooden spoons, and he would bang away as if he were playing a drum kit. And she, but she said, as long as I heard noise, I knew he wasn't wasn't getting into any trouble. <laughs> right. Some of these stories, she was telling them to me, and I couldn't. The book is written in Nick's voice. Yeah. So I, I couldn't use those quotes after the fact without just having having a, a you know a footnote or a sidebar and we ended up going with sidebars because they're a little bit a little bit easier and uh, and the other thing is <clears throat> Ellison after Nick passed away um, he you know on reflection had all all this material to share with me um, and he's he's a great guy Dave Ellison's a, a really really nice man he's he's really a, a sweet soul and very kind and and he I give him a lot of credit he was very very nice to me very kind to me and the family and um, and and giving me unfettered access and uh, and you know he'd think of things and then reach out to me <clears throat> remembrances and uh, I thought it was the the best way to include as much of that material as I could as if they were sidebars and right in the book so how are Nick's boys doing are they following the family tradition uh, in music and that's Nicholas and Dante right Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they both play, um, <laughs> Nick in a, a very praiseworthy passing criticism. He <laughs> laughingly, uh, I would ask him that same question and he'd say, well, <clears throat> you know, whomever, whether it's Nicholas or Dante, he'd say, well, no, now he's great on, on keyboards, but he, he won't decide the kids, you know, they're great at everything they do. And, you know, he, um, it was a begrudging frustration. He said that I keep telling them they need to settle down, just play bass just play drums, just play guitar. Uh, so the, you know, they're both extremely talented boys and, um, where they're at today, whether, uh, one or the other or both, um, has settled on a, on an instrument. I actually don't know, but they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're both very, very talented, very, very creative boys. All right. Last question. And I'll begin right. with a quote from Nick. I pledge allegiance to the frequencies of the United Field of Acoustics and to the vibrations for which they sound on sine wave, under oscillation, invisible, with equal and just tuning for all. <laughs> what more? Yeah, what more can you can you leave us with about uh, Nick Menza? He was hilarious. He he loved all things. Um, conspiratorial. He loved conspiracy theories. 
I don't know. I honestly, honestly don't know what he believed. Um, <clears throat> he would tease me that he he started to become an adherent of uh, flat Earth, which you know is very oh, silly. But my God. In, in one breath, he'd he doubt the moon landings, and then in the next, uh, tell me that he he was pretty sure that the the Nazis had actually fled to the moon. They had a moon base on the dark side. Nick loved he loved this stuff and UFOs. He faked a UFO sighting, uh, which he put up on YouTube and. Uh, he, he loved that kind of junk to get a rise out of people. Um, <clears throat> he'd talk about, um, oh, you know, <clears throat> vaccinations, which is a hot issue right now. Yeah. Or, you know, he, he, he maintained that the, he thought FEMA was, was just in existence to set up camps for us all when the, when the hammer falls. And he, <clears throat> I actually don't think Nick believed a lot of this stuff, indeed, if he believed in any of it. But the thing was, it wasn't as flippant as perhaps it may have seemed, or as I just described it, the reason Nick did this was he wanted people to think. He would <clears throat> float out some of these theories, you know, like, <clears throat> um, oh, we, we, you know, we can't, we've never been to outer space. We can't go to outer space because of the uh, the Von Allen radiation belt. We'd just be toasted. We'd be microwaved in the capsule. The capsule would have to be eight feet thick, iron or, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, lead walls. He, he said, there's no way we can go to outer space. He didn't believe that, but he wanted to say that just to find out what your reaction would be. So did you argue with him over some of this stuff? Uh, <clears throat> no, I, I wouldn't. I, I just kind of laugh and go, well, <laughs> I, I would tease him about that very – I'd take a step back and go, why are you trying to get that reaction from me? You know how I'll react. And <clears throat> so we never really discussed it on a, on a serious level. Did you but, see him uh, argue with people on this, uh, on oh, these uh, oh, conspiratorial ideas? Oh, yeah, he, he loved it. He oh. loved it. So it was just, just, to, just to get a uh, some mental gymnastics going then. Well, yeah, and not in a mean-spirited way. It was, it was playful. It was brain tennis for him. But he, he liked to get people to think about things. So he never uh, got mean or, or definitely oh, serious about these uh, no. cockamamie <clears throat> ideas. He, he would just put, float them out there and, and see uh, what kind of fodder would come back. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, it, it was fun for him. He was, Nick was so artistic. He made candles. He painted. He made sculptures. <clears throat> um, some of the, the creepiest, coolest things he did was he, he made fetuses alien fetuses and he pickled them formaldehyde and got laboratory labels to put on them and you know biohazard stickers he did this for fun and they'd be in the kitchen these things hanging out sounds um, like he could have had a career in hollywood oh yeah yeah that was um <clears throat> well one of the things nick was working on the last year was uh was an animated series. He 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 wanted to do a, an animation called Atomic Disintegrator. He loved science fiction, all things animated. He wanted to do it with the boys, involve his, his two boys on that. And you know, the the guy was nonstop. He started building cajones, uh, the, the South American uh, percussion instruments, and they're beautiful woodwork. He sent one to my wife. Uh, he made them for other for other friends of mine, and his. And uh, you know, they're magnificent. They're he, he experimented with different woods, turning the, the wood grains different ways. I mean, he was highly experimental. He made his own um, uh, studio headphones that were, uh, uh, you know, like completely isolating so that he could play as loud as he wanted and, and they wouldn't spill into the overhead mics in the studio. And they, he was just endless. 
he built the studios in his, or the, I'm sorry, the speakers, the monitors in his own studio. He built them to his own specifications. He, uh, you know, the guy was relentless. His his, his energy and his um, creative powers. Yeah, he, he he comes across in the book as a really really interesting guy, uh, uh, a, a very fun uh, and 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 uh, uh, sweet soul. Uh, Super sweet. I, I, I think that that that's that's obvious. And uh, yeah. you know, uh, it's funny. You, you know, you don't you don't get a lot of books like this uh, about sidemen. And uh, he, you know, he was a character. Uh, that's true. Uh, and I'm sure he could be a pain in the ass, uh, certainly to, <laughs> to Dave Mustaine uh, or anybody who would take that sort of leadership mantle and uh, not wield it, uh, uh, you know, accordingly. And um, uh, you know, it's it's too bad. It's that he 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 had such a, a short life. I, I would have liked yeah. to have seen more of what 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 happened to him. So me too. Um, well, Jeff Marshall, Craig, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's hear it for J. Marshall Craig. Thank you very much, Jeff. Wow, lots to take in here. Nick sounds like someone I would have loved to hang out with and share a laugh or two. It's too bad the classic Megadeth lineup never was able to return. And while Mustaine and Elfson uh, with Revolving Cast have continued on, still able to grab audiences worldwide and certainly considered one of the Hydra heads of the late 80s and 90s metal monster... It does seem like something was lost without Nick Menza, as well as Marty Friedman on lead guitar. Uh, We've seen this many times before. There really is magic when a certain group of people come together and make music. Remove one piece, and more often than not, uh, like a Jenga puzzle, the whole thing comes crashing down. Now, that didn't exactly happen to Megadeth, uh, and I'm sure uh, many of you are out there saying, well, what about this band, or what about that band? And yeah, I hear you, I hear you, but ask yourself, were they really ever as good as the classic lineup? Okay, now on ACDC, I get a pass. Come on, one in a million, you get even bigger. Mostly, <laughs> it's diminished uh, returns in at least some small way. Uh, perhaps uh, their time would have been up uh, and the downhill slide begin anyway. Uh, I mean, was Nick really satisfied after cryptic warnings? Uh, you know, who knows? What's done is done. Rust in peace, as the man says. Okay, until next week, I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, and... Keep up the head banging. Don't remember where I was. I 
realize life was a game. More seriously, I took things. The harder the lows became. to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renter's and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.